Welcome to Writing for the Feeling, uh, here on Best Frequencies Forever, BFF.fm. Our guest here today is Rowan Katz. Rowan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on the show, Gabby. My pleasure. Um, yeah, my name is Rowan. I am an Oakland-based, Los Angeles, proper, born and raised musician, performer, educator, um, I'm a practicing mystic. Um, some people would identify me as a witch, and I uh, could probably write an entire dissertation on what that word means <laughs> to me. Um, I am a mixed faith Jewish and pagan mystic and practitioner. Um, a lot of my world and a lot of my practice is built around kind of where like mysticism and magical practice um mythology rematriation intersect with um abolitionist practice and politic and especially how that relates to the work of harm reduction um collective trauma healing uh singing music um, somatic practice, both just in community and in performance space, um, and yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my world and my life has been devoted to exploring those things in my own body, and my own experience, um, and yeah. Wow, that was like I think maybe one of the, the most well-rounded introductions that I've ever heard someone give themselves. <laughs> Usually people are like, oh, you know, I do this and I do that and I do a little bit of this as well. And then like it takes the course of uh, an interview to like draw out why they're doing these things and like what actually the work consists of. Um, 
but that was all right there. I think we're done. I think we've got it. Okay, great. That's <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, you know, if you write enough, if you have to write enough artist bios and like grant and residency applications, you, you've got to get pretty good at explaining to people who yeah. you are and what you do. And the one thing that I'd tack onto that is like, you know, I, I really identify with just being like a folk musician and a folk artist and frankly a lot of the things that I've just described Mm -hmm. are for me really seated in in that and I think a lot of people are like they they think about folk as a genre of music and they think about like acoustic guitars and like a marketed genre right you know I think a lot of the reason why I struggle with a label like witch is not because I actually have a problem with that like I love being identified as a witch but I think it's more just like what is now called uh, like a witch or a healer or these roles and identities like in sort of like pre-colonial societies of all kinds, which gets really complicated when you start talking about what indigeneity means in the context of like, you know, white American people descended from Europeans, like the concept of European indigeneity is really complicated, but I would say just living in close community, in direct relationship with the land, like those labels aren't as necessary. They're just things that you do, you know, showing up for your community members through the use of things like, you know, quote-unquote magic Mm -hmm. again a word that I think is like become more potent since Mm -hmm. magic was made into this like religious thing that was totally devoid of like science and um but I don't know I think I think there's a lot of ways that we feel like we have to describe ourselves in the world today that previously were just a part of life Right. And I think can just become normal parts of life and being again. Right. I always think about that when I see people's like Instagram bios that have like 10 fucking things in them. Mm-hmm. Just like, and this and this and this and I do this kind of work and this kind of work and this kind of work. Or like, you know, artist, educator, activist, whatever. <laughs> I mean, mine literally is that. I think yours is yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. And like every single time that I see one of those... I'm just like, I I love seeing all of those words together because it really does give a sense for like what kind of like content this person's gonna be putting on their page and like what kind yeah. of like things are important to them. Yeah. But also, I'm every single time just like, okay, but like we're all artists and we're all yeah. educators. You know, like you know, everyone makes things and everyone um, teaches other people how to do things, mm-hmm. whether they're really thinking about it as teaching or not. And everyone, hopefully at some point in their lives, like, stands the fuck up for something that they believe in. And, like, hopefully everyone in their life is moving through all of those roles, whether or not they are super aware or super identifying those words and, like, would would tell someone else that, like, I am an activist. Definitely. I mean, I feel that profoundly. I actually, like, fucking hate having to figure out how to say those things or how to, what, you know, what does my email signature say or what does my Instagram (laughs) bio say? But I think as, like, a freelance working 
artist, educator, whatever, all of those things, like, it's frustrating to actually have, it's, it necessitates having to explain to the people that are looking to hire you, like, who you are and what you're doing, because in reality, I don't want to have to monetize these things, like, at all. Um, but you know, I didn't create the structures that make that necessary. No, you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Hollywood and I just think it's very funny whenever people are like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from LA. And they'll be like, oh, like, where'd you grow up thinking I'm going to say like Anaheim or the Valley or whatever. And I'm like, Hollywood, literally, Mm -hmm. you know, not even Hollywood adjacent, just straight up right there, like Hollywood and Vine, like, you know that neighborhood right Mm -hmm. and like growing up in in that in sort of like that um you know the root of all evil so to speak like i i love where i call it the root well (laughs) yeah it's not but it's it's a it's a mecca of it of like and i love a lot of parts of la and where i grew up that get really really sidelined by the fact that the film and music industries are heavily concentrated there like there is so what when I think about LA and the parts of LA I really love it is not the film and music industry it is not the people who move there for those things it's like the incredible communities I grew up around like specifically like 
the Chicano communities, um, Mexican immigrant communities. Um, I grew up around so many like Korean and Filipino people and obviously like the incredible like black communities of Los Angeles and like I just feel like that's those are the things to me that make LA what it is like the richness of those histories and the ways that I perceive them and like the parts of Los Angeles that aren't developed and that are actively resisting gentrification like there's so much history there and so much richness and like incredible histories of like activism and art and um but that being said you know I think a lot of us who grew up in LA proper who are musicians and thespians and everything in the world of of being artists like it often felt like oh, we're right next to this thing. Like, we need to really learn how to participate in it and make the best of it and, like, be noticed by the behemoth that is the industry. There's all of this money and all of this opportunity kind of sitting right there. And, I mean, it's also really incredible, you know, to name some of the to name some of the ways in which the communities I just listed have actually taken back that power and learned how to like exploit those industries to their Mm -hmm. benefit and still became exploited by them. But like, you know, fucking hip hop legit. I mean, hip hop started in a lot of places around the U S it can't just be credited to one space, but like Compton, like major birthplace of rap and hip hop and like, specifically also like the Chicano community of artists in Los Angeles have you know come deeply into intersection and work in some ways like some big Mm -hmm. names with like the film and music industries Mm -hmm. but most of that shit has been completely perpetuated solely by the communities that fund it and make it possible and same thing with with a lot of the Asian communities of Los Angeles in particular like the um, the work of, of artists and the strongholds of culture in, um, little Tokyo, like in downtown mm-hmm. LA and Olvera street, just all these amazing places. But all of that being said, like it took me a really long time and I still, still think I'm in the daily process of like just really dismantling and letting go of any kind of desire to perform for or be like chosen by Mm -hmm. the like music industry it's very hypocritical of me to be a person who stands in direct confrontation of and intense criticality of like all of these systems of hegemonic whiteness and masculinity and like psychopathy that make up like American society and not remain that not retain that criticality when it comes to the music industry right where it's like I think for so many of us who are musicians especially we're like the only way I'm ever going to be able to make a living off my art is by figuring out how to get the funding and the resources of this industry yeah do you feel do you think that it feels hypocritical because you are also a musician yeah. And so, like, you were also, like... I mean, I felt this when I lived in L.A. I was I was working in the film and television industry. 
mm-hmm. and um, it ended up being something that I wasn't really sure that I could handle long term. Mm-hmm. Is like is that balance? Is the is the the double standard that I think you're maybe talking about of like I know this is if not the root of all evil, like a breeding ground of things that make human life miserable. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's that it's this But I need to make a living. Right. Of course. And this is what I love to do. And this is what you love to do. Yeah, and it's that's how it traps you. Yeah. But I think moreover, like the even more fucked up cycle of it, which I think so many people, especially in the film industry, are just endlessly frustrated by is like you finally break in and you get Mm -hmm. the resources you've always wanted and then it takes you a long time to be able to even tell the stories you want to tell so that you're essentially using this platform that is very much like working against you Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways to tell stories that attempt to dismantle those systems yes 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 but you're doing it within the constructs of those systems and like the only way I think we've really be able, been able to see that change is more and more like conscious people from truly diverse backgrounds coming into positions of power in the industry. Yeah. Like not just the artists on their rosters, mm-hmm. but like the executives in the room, the pr- the producers in the room. Um, and I think, you know, I've got some friends in the film industry right now um, in particular, uh, Frankie Garces of um, Good Omen Pictures um, is based in L.A. And Frankie's from an incredible, like, West L.A., Santa Monica, Chicano um, community and is really using this production company as a way to foster the stories of, like, black and brown folks um, from L.A., Um, And it's amazing to see him doing that. And, like, these are the kind of people in my world that I really hope wind up in those positions in the industry. And I've also got a dear friend, um, Eddie Wall, who runs a production company out of Seattle called Bioluminescent Films. Um, And they are, by and large, a um, women and queer-centered and run production company. And... Like, it's really, you know, and I think, like, this all comes back to this point of being, like, it's pretty amazing to see what happens when the people in my world, when I watch them actively to use some fun Marxist language, but, like, you know, what does it mean to not just take the means of production, but what does it mean to change the definition mm-hmm. of what that is? Right. And I started asking the question a long time ago when I, you know, I started booking shows when I was 15 in LA. And I now have, you know, I don't book shows as much anymore in sort of like DIY community, but I do a lot of coordination and production work mm-hmm. in you know, the bigger world of theater, really well-funded theater. And um, when I was living in New York between the ages of, like, 18 and 20, I was really 
and and studying this stuff in school mm-hmm. like i was really almost obsessively concerned with how do i take the values and the resources of community that exist right. in the diy world and then actually create financial literacy and yeah. and resource those things well enough that they can actually divest from needing to kind of chase the resources of these you know corporate industries yeah. And so when I see people like Julia and Frankie doing what they're doing, I, I see them finding that middle ground. Um, and that is something that I'm really mostly curious about as an artist these days is like, especially as a musician and in some ways a theater performer, because I, I don't just do music. I also still do performance art. And I think I'm really really excited by the idea of what happens when we find when we create communities where that kind of artistic leadership is so robust that we're no longer replicating Mm -hmm. the models of success that these corporate industries have set out for us i love that you use the term divestment because it's something that i i look at so many things and i'm like divest and so i'm wondering how like maybe we can dream a little bit for a second of like what does it look like for a community and it can be in anyone that you are thinking of what does it look like for the artists in that community to have the kind of to have the means of production yeah like what's that what's that what's that look like yeah that's an exciting question and i yeah. i'm very stoked and i love how you phrased that um and i'm very happy to answer considering i've been thinking about that and trying to act upon that a lot lately. And you know, what's interesting is like, it doesn't begin with resources. It begins with Mm -hmm. intention. Yeah. I do not like going out to crowded shows anymore. Like, and when I'm there, I'm masking, but I feel nine times out of 10, I just don't feel safe in my body. I don't, you know, so the other question that appears is what does it mean to make spaces accessible? Which is a big conversation that we have really, really failed to have as a community that I have failed to have yeah. as a facilitator and yeah. as a performer. And that my friend, um, Anna Gordon, who's a really amazing musician, really called me in on recently. And it's something I've been thinking a lot more about, you know, because a lot of the disabled people that were in our communities before the pandemic have effectively disappeared without us much noticing or talking about it. And I think that to create, you know, the idea of a safe space is like, that feels like like a term that promises more than it can achieve, Mm -hmm. but an accessible space, that is a reality that we can create. So to me, it's also like what happens when our events are smaller, what happens when there's, you know, masks provided and people are asked to test and there's chairs set up for people who can't stand the whole time. And I'm interested in, I'm interested in passionately attempting to figure out what those look like and also to hold myself accountable to the ways in which I have failed at that Mm -hmm. 
as a facilitator and as a performer in the past, you know? I think that one of the biggest things we can do to divest is to stop looking at our artistic spaces as a place for escapism. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between like an intentional escapism into something that is like fantastical and beautiful and like magical and then um like just kind of enabling each other in trying to like escape our feelings and our bodies and like to me that is one of the greatest weapons of white supremacy capitalism misogyny classism is is pitting people against themselves yeah and being like flooding communities with substances and then like the only break that we get from the torture of daily life is to go use more of those substances and that's one big thing to me is just like i'm i'm never gonna sit here and judge anyone who uses substances like i get it i did that for many years like i understand everything that is involved there but like to me creating community spaces where there can be a sense of frivolity that is met with a sense of connection Mm -hmm. not disconnection like um what does it look like to not have a stage Mm -hmm. you know and and thinking about like (laughs) the way that theater as we know it today began you know was happening in circular spaces like a lot yeah the you know this you are like an actress like the greeks were doing like the entire concept of theater came from circular spaces where they were turning their like community rituals into storytelling um shakespeare one of the great equalizers of like british society where like Maybe the only one where, like, poor people could come and see live theater. You know, that was being done in circular space. And I'm curious about what happens when, let's say, I throw an event or a, or a show or something. What happens when I have an MC there every time to introduce every act, right? To hold that space. Yeah what happens when I don't have any alcohol there or when I only have like a low ABV alcohol, but I'm serving tea and snacks. Um, what happens when I call everyone into that space and even before any kind of performance occurs, there's an opening ritual of some kind, you know, not even necessarily like a spiritual one, but just Mm. like a secular way to set the tone of the space and then when everyone's done there's a closing ritual like i don't want to view a community space as a means to an end right Mm -hmm. i want to view it as a space i'm coming into with intentionality Mm -hmm. um and then the other part to that too is like i've really become very curious about and i think in in a critical way what does it mean to be a performer in front of an audience? What is, cause right. like 
I think a lot of us go into spaces, whether it's the rave or whether it's, you know, a venue. And there's this assumption that the artist must entertain the audience and that the audience is there to be entertained. And I'm not saying that that is how all of us experience that by a long shot, but I don't want to entertain anybody. Like, great if that happens, but to me, my role is a folk musician Mm -hmm. and as a singer and songwriter I'm not there to to entertain you I'm there to connect with you I'm and I'm not there to take care of you actually and you're also not there to take care of me you know like we are what does it mean to create spaces where an audience and a performer are having a held interaction with each other where they're in a state of reciprocity. And so taking all of these concepts and putting them together, I think that when we ask ourselves as facilitators, often facilitators of events where we are also performing at those events and then also audience members of Mm -hmm. those events, what does it look like to create spaces where there's a focus on co-regulating, being embodied, and yeah, of course, having fun, Mm -hmm. but in ways that really center the experience of connection and not assuming that we're going to reinforce power dynamics and violences that we're, we're trying to divest from, you know, and think that's a huge way of taking the power back. And I think it, you know, if I were to if I were to summarize that on a meta level, it's literally just, you know, turning a pyramid into a circle, mm-hmm. right? Um, and making sure that that circle has room for everybody in it. And um, I'm interested in creating circular models of connection.
I think I think a lot about uh, how shows reflect the communities that they, you know, mm. the, the people who are attending them. Um, and I love, you know, and, and support and participate in, I think, a lot of shows where um, maybe there's some pretty, some communities that often don't have overlap that are coming together for those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I love to, to if I am going to book a show or uh, agree to play a show, like, I love playing shows where no one else on the bill, like, sounds like me yeah. or is really uh, uh, the kind of artist that I think, like, people who come to see me perform mm-hmm. would go to mm-hmm. see. And so, and I just think it's really interesting yeah. when those kind of things happen. And so, but I think I would love to hear your perspective on, like, how we can better prepare ourselves and and plan these kind of events to make them accessible for everyone and you t- you touched on some of these things already but like I think sometimes I'm wondering whether it has to be the community that is prepared or like the the artists and the hosts that are prepared or everyone needs to be a little more better prepared and like um can artists be that catalyst mm-hmm. or does do you think that it has to has to be a greater community project as well yeah I for sure think the responsibility falls on artists and hosts and the reason that I think that is because like I know what it's like to be a community member and an artist and a facilitator right. in all of those roles who has failed right. at creating more accessible spaces And I know that it's actually really, it's just too easy when you are trying to go out and have a good time and you're fucking tired of thinking about COVID and like wearing a mask and all of the trauma that that all of that, not necessarily wearing a mask, but all of the trauma that like a global pandemic has created, like it's just easier to not think about it. And when you come into a space where no one else has thought about it for you, right? you're gonna have a wall up around it unless you're someone who actively stands to be affected by it and therefore that is why our disabled community members are no longer in these spaces with us or i should say are are immune compromised whatever that looks like you know and i'll also say that we desperately need our disabled and compromised community members with us in these spaces like our disabled community members um, have perspective and insight on um, the social paradigms we are trying to dismantle that the rest of us just do not have in the same way. That is why, you know, like, I'm not a fan of the idea of advocating for, like, like, identity politics in the sense that, like, just because of someone's ability race class whatever that that makes them like a really formidable leader right but there is a reason why it's extremely apparent that when black and indigenous people and like disabled people are people living at those intersections mm-hmm. like that experience what what that all speaks of to me is when you have really conscientious people really like really like soulful heart-led 
people who understand what it's like to be treated as disposable at the helm of organizing space, they are going to create a space in which it is really evident that nobody's body is disposable in that space, you know? And I have experienced what that feels like, and it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing to be in a space where it's really clear that nobody's body is seen as disposable. Um, But I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance for a lot of us around like needing our bodies to be in communal spaces and like not feel like we're still being so constricted by a pandemic and also calling in that awareness simultaneously. And I think a lot of us need to start asking the question, a lot of us who don't exist at those intersections need to start asking the question, how can we start to do that work for those people instead of constantly Mm -hmm. calling on them to do it by themselves? Um, Which is another great way of creating intentional artistic community. Um, But yeah, I think that it really is on the artists and the hosts of those spaces and, you know, to figure out a way to resource that space with things like masks and to ask people to test before they come and to make sure that there are enough chairs, make sure that your event isn't over capacity. It's a really big one. Like it's crazy to me that we, it was just a few years ago that we were having people die one after the other at shows and like it's not that out of the question that that could happen at some of the shows I've seen mm. at smaller venues here. Mm. Like I was at a show recently that was like way over capacity, and that's on the venue owner. Right. You know, that's not on the artists. Yeah. They're not in charge of yeah. making sure that the venue isn't over capacity, but yeah. Again, creating accessible spaces we can't guarantee that they're going to be safe because no one can guarantee that. But unfortunately, um, but you know, again, like I've come into an awareness that I want to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. when I go out. Um, and I've said this before, but the one thing all of us have in common is that we all have a body and that like no one can speak better to the ways in which our bodies are seen as disposable than people who have lived that experience and yeah to the point of my friend doing me the the big favor of calling me in anna's an amazing folk musician um who hails from washington state and is now based in oregon um and if you haven't heard of her or haven't heard her music you should look it up on spotify her name is anna gordon really incredible musician really incredible just like thinker and creator in the world of the intersection of being a really badass musician who is also a disabled person and anna and i hadn't spoken for a while and when we started talking again Anna 
you know, gave me a lot of information that I didn't have or maybe wasn't even really ready to consider at an earlier point in the pandemic about what it's been like for her to be disabled and compromised and a musician as all of this has unfolded and still in many, many ways, like have no access to community or spaces to play. And like, I don't know if you can conceive what it would be like to just not play a show for like four years but it's really hard for me to think about that. Um, and yet it's been her reality, you know? And when we, when we caught up again after a long time of not talking to each other, a big topic that came up and was on the table between us um, was, you know, Anna wanting to know in, in earnest and for really good reason, like, what is your practice around wearing a mask in your daily life and what's your practice around the way that you're navigating playing shows facilitating them and I noticed a lot of guilt shame defensiveness come up in me at that moment and on the other hand, though, I also was kind of able to have a moment of identifying like, oh, like I feel guilt, shame, and defensiveness and confusion, but I also feel like I am able to identify a lot of ways in which I am still successfully paying attention to these things. Um, and I, you know, we had a preliminary conversation about it, after which I kind of sat with those questions for a few weeks and really needed to and in the interim of that happening I started to actually think about like what it is like for me as someone who doesn't drink doesn't use my drugs of choice being in so many spaces where I am just surrounded by alcohol all the time and where I try not to feel on edge and I'm certainly not feeling judgmental, but like just years of having to be in spaces where I have prioritized the safety and preferences of a lot of people who are doing things that are not safe for me, you know, and acknowledging that like that is my choice, that is my agency, but that I'm just surrounded by things that at one point almost killed me. Yeah. yeah. And like could kill me again if I yeah. decided to start using them again. Yeah. Um like I started to kind of realize in my own experience and in my own body what some of this has been like for our disabled and compromised community members. Um and how frustrating it is to be in spaces where it is so clear that there is no consideration of community members who are struggling with these things. And that it's expected that you pretty much either like get over it or you don't come. I always am thinking that it feels like, because sometimes it does feel this way to me too, is like, I just wish that it wasn't like a big fucking deal or like a, I wish that it wasn't like, that I didn't feel like I was taking a risk, a huge risk for myself every time that I put myself in a space where, you know, that is a possibility. 
Yeah. And like, and like, why is it so much so on me to like... To be that person. To be that person. Yeah. And to feel like the asshole. Yeah. When you or want f- something to different. feel like, yeah. Or to feel like, like, God, everyone is doing me such a favor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And that's another thing that I realized about like my friend having to ask me whether or not I was doing basic things that make it possible for them to like leave the house and have a, have a community that I often take for granted Yeah. or to play a show for the first time in four years. I don't want her to have to feel grateful for that. Frankly, I don't want my friends and loved ones to have to feel grateful for me doing the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. They deserve better than that. You know? Yeah, I think all of those awarenesses can exist simultaneously, and not everyone has an Anna in their lives. Yeah, yeah. And I, I happen which to, is crazy, which, but yeah. which is crazy, because the the truth is, is actually a lot of us did have, and those really people close have receded. friends. Yeah, and those people have receded. They don't feel safe being friends with us anymore, and for good reason. Yeah. And I feel fortunate that, you know my friend cared enough about our relationship to have that really hard conversation with me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, tell me about you are a folk artist mm-hmm. and a folk singer. Yeah. And um yeah, where are you in the traditions that you are a part of? Yeah, that's a and great And where question. are those traditions? Yeah. Um totally. I think What's really weird is, like, I think I'll always maybe struggle a little bit with imposter syndrome in folk traditions because these are, like, revival traditions. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I very strongly identify as a member of the American folk tradition community, which is a complicated-ass thing to say. Um, I want to be very clear about acknowledging the fact that the way that I write music, even the way I sing in that folk tradition, only exists because of the innumerable contributions and fun, like fundamental predication of the genre on uh, the music of uh, black slaves and the black American community, the black diaspora, really. Um, and that a big introduction into this music for me, like I grew up playing, um, with the bluegrass band at the Hollywood farmers market. And so Mm -hmm. that music was embedded in me at a really early age, but, you know, simultaneously the first album I ever purchased for, I have no idea why I did not even fucking know what it was. I went to Amoeba when it used to be on Sunset Mm -hmm. Boulevard, Sunset and Coimbra right there Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. And I bought Alan Lomax's, one of Alan Lomax's collections um, of spirituals he recorded in like prisons across the deep south. And I was, that is the first moment at which I put together that the bluegrass music I was hearing was some insane combination of like celtic music Mm -hmm. and these like field spirituals and slave songs and 
obviously like I'm also a big student of like the Joan Baez's and Joni Mitchell's of the world and the deep cut Appalachian music which is right in there that's as like chef's kiss American folk tradition as it gets because that right there is like the milieu of all those communities um but to me like the American folk tradition at its core it is blues music and it is storytelling and it is the music of poor and marginalized people from a lot of different walks of life and it's resistance music a lot of it is union music hell yeah um and that's what i love so much about it you know but the other big big folk traditions that i that i am really interested in are my jewish folk tradition so i'm very very dedicated to building a practice and catalog of diasporic Jewish music. So, um, Jewish music that is in Hebrew and Arabic and Ladino and Yiddish. And that'll be a lifelong practice of mine. I often say that every language is a Jewish language, even though we think of some as being more so than others for Mm -hmm. obvious reasons, but Jewish diaspora exists everywhere. Um, And I think contributing to the practice of dismantling Ashka normativity and like white Judaism is somehow being more prevalent in the world is really important through musical and folk tradition. Um, And then along with that, I have... um, invested a lot of time and energy into building a repertoire of Balkan folk music and just like just non-Jewish Eastern European music because I am Ashkenazi and Mm -hmm. so there's a lot that feeds me from just like the complexity of having ancestry that comes from Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. but wasn't necessarily like considered a part of that population but I am deeply deeply attracted to and very like in love with those harmonies and that music and yeah I just like want to learn songs in every language like from all over the world basically and um just like be a be a keeper of my lineage traditions and also like I have had some really amazing experiences of keepers of other lineage traditions like giving me the gift of teaching me some of their songs and like I would love to keep that kind of trade going for a long time in my life so yeah and again like I could probably go on for a lot longer about what all of those different traditions mean to me what they do for me the kind of vocal styles that are really exciting to me about them but a great way to learn more about that is to come to one of my workshops come to one's workshop um all my workshops are sliding scale and not a fluff and um i teach group singing workshops on like communal singing as a world mending practice is what i call it but it's really like a somatic singing workshop that focuses on yes like vocal technique and we mm-hmm. do a lot of singing together so you are learning how to train your voice Mm -hmm. but a lot of it is also really focused on dismantling shame around the voice getting in touch with the body um taking some some big 
intentionality and practice around trauma healing into the space and really using communal singing as um, a way of embracing like communal and political values of connection of um, how do we support each other in singing and what does it feel like to co-regulate together singing um, so if that is something that sounds interesting to you my next workshop will be on the 16th of this month at St. Paul's Lutheran in Oakland and you can find me on Instagram at Rowan Katz the flyer is up there and you just have to email me drop me a Venmo um, and definitely just DM me if you can't um, afford money as a way to come <laughs> and we'll work something out so yeah sick I will also be performing at They Friend, the non-binary performance festival yeah. on November 18th. 18th, cool. Um, if any of you freaks want to come see me do some performance art with my voice, then. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Gabby. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing all of this and yeah. sharing your work. My pleasure. Cool. All right. That, uh, I think that about does it. Um this has been Conversation with Rowan Katz on uh, Grinding for the Feeling. Best frequencies for freaking ever. BFF.fm. <laughs> <laughs>